Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Welcome to Protect and Serve, the podcast that delves into the incredible lives of police officers across the United Kingdom and around the world. I'm your host, Oliver Lawrence, and together we will embark on a journey to explore the untold stories of those who dedicated their lives to protecting and serving their communities. You may be sitting there wondering why I chose to start this podcast. Well, let me share with you a little bit about myself. I served as a uniformed officer for over a decade. During my time, I witnessed firsthand the immense sacrifices that officers make daily. From confronting dangerous situations to offering a helping hand, their dedication is unwavering. These experiences left a profound impact on me, even after I hung up my uniform. I created the podcast to shed light on the extraordinary work of police officers, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the globe. Each episode will feature riveting interviews with these brave men and women, offering you a glimpse into the challenges they faced, the triumphs they celebrated, and the personal journeys that brought them to this noble profession. But it's not just about the heroic moments, it's about the individuals behind the uniforms. We'll explore their passions, their motivations, and their unwavering commitment to protecting and serving their communities. This podcast isn't about promoting any particular agenda or glossing over the often complex nature of policing. Instead, it's a platform to celebrate the diverse perspectives and experiences that exist within the law enforcement community. We will address the tough questions, engage in honest and courageous conversations, seeking to understand the myriad of roles and responsibilities that come with being a police officer. Whether you're a fellow officer, someone aspiring to join the police, or a curious listener seeking to gain insight into the lives of those who wear the uniform, Protect and Serve has something for everyone. So join me as we embark on this eye-opening journey, sharing stories that will inspire, enlighten, bring a tear to the eye, and create a better understanding of the dedication and sacrifices police officers make to keep us safe. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Together, we'll explore the heart and soul of those who proudly protect and serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve, Series 3 now, Episode 3. How exciting, you know, we are interviewing incredible people on the front lines and the back offices of policing understanding the challenges of policing in the 21st century and also reflecting on people's careers as they've gone back through the years i always find that fascinating how the police service has evolved over many many years and equally i think as police officers have evolved i think the people that they deal with have evolved over time in terms of the challenges that um, police officers face when dealing with people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And some of those people, I think we could argue that 65, 70% of the people that police officers will come into contact with day in, day out, will have tragically some sort of mental health challenge that they're trying to overcome. You know, We see the calls for service for mental health dominating the police and dominating the headlines. More so recently, Sir Mark Rowley saying that we were going to be withdrawing in London from the non-emergency related mental health challenges and uh, leaning back onto the National Health Service to sort of pick up that part of uh, the public's need for support. To talk about that and a lot more and to really get to the sharp end of people in our society and people that commit crime 
is Dr. Shaham Das. Welcome to the podcast this evening. How are you, first of all? Mr. Lawrence, very uh, very good, thank you. Thank you for having me on, it's a pleasure. No, 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 thank you ever so much. Now, like I say at the beginning of every, my, every, at the beginning of every one of my shows, I like to wind back the clock like every good detective and start at the beginning of one's career. Now, am I right? You're a clinical psychiatrist by trade. Is that what your title is? A forensic psychiatrist. So uh, clinical is basically anybody that works with patients, but forensic specifically means uh, people, violent defenders. So and so, talk us through that journey to get into that role. Where did that all start from? Sure. Um, so I think I was, I was fa- fascinated with criminality as a child. You know, I used to love listening to my gangster rap, Snoop Dogg, NWA. I used to watch all these mob movies, even when I was really young, you know, Goodfellas, Scarface, all of that stuff. So I was really into it and I didn't really understand why. It was just kind of fascinated me. Uh, you know, I never wanted to be a gangster. I just, I just thought there was something cool about the whole kind of um, mysticism behind it all uh, and the honour and everything like that. And then I kind of forgot about it, to be perfectly honest with you. I never thought that I would do a, a, a career or pursue a career that had anything to do with crime. Uh, then I went to medical school. Um, not because I was particularly interested in becoming a doctor, but because I was my parents pushed me and I, I was smart enough to get the grades. Uh, kind of bummed around through medical school, which is in Edinburgh from 97 to 2003. Uh, didn't really have much inspiration, so I just about get through all my exams and did the, the minimum amount of work. You know, it was much more focused on the socialising part of university. Uh, and then I did a psychiatry placement when I was in my end of my fourth year. And I just fell in love with it immediately. I really clicked with uh, like seeing really disturbed individuals, like people with schizophrenia, for example, who were psychotic, who had these really bizarre uh, delusional worlds that you'd step into. Or sometimes you'd see people who were at the lowest ebb. So post-suicide attempt, for example, I I would assess people on the wards. Uh, And to my surprise, I had a bit of a knack to it. So for everything that I didn't take, I didn't study that hard for, I didn't do that well in, in medical school, which is most things. I was I was just good at psychiatry, I think, because I had, I was, in, I was genuinely interested in it, number one, but I had like quite good communication skills, people skills, more than I could be asked studying, um, which is why I struggled in my other modules. So then I, I did a few different things, did a bit of A&E, um, worked as an intensive care doctor for a few months, you know, as a very junior doctor, worked on medical wards. And then I actually moved to Australia in 2006. And whilst I was out there, I did a six-month placement in psychiatry, uh, working on the wards. It once again reminded me how much I enjoyed it as a medical student, decided to pursue a career as a psychiatrist. And then during my junior training, you do like six months placements in lots of different settings. And one of my settings was in a medium secure unit in North London. And it was 14 men and almost all of them had killed somebody or and the ones that hadn't had committed some sort of violent or sexual crime. And to be, to be honest with you, Ollie, the thing that drew me in was just just learning about them and their backstories, like almost every single time there's a reason that they ended up committing serious crimes and or having a mental illness. And it's often the same reason, you know, poverty, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, uh, drug and alcohol issues were, were huge. In fact, almost everybody had some form of drug and alcohol issue at some point in their lives. So you could, if you went back and spoke to their family members, saw their medical notes, you can kind of piece together how and, and why their life fell apart. So that, that's the interesting bit for me. So it's like reverse, like the reverse of a detective. You don't, you don't have to find something out. You know the end product. You go backwards in time to find out to find out what caused it. So that's what drew me in. Stereotypically, when we think of patients that have committed serious and violent crime as a result of sort of mental health related issues, we think that they get placed into facilities like I, I'm going to say as a child, I grew up with knowing this facility where I live called Cane Hill, a mental health hospital in South London. We, we've obviously got Broadmoor, which is probably one of the most notable names these aren't individuals that get arrested convicted of their crimes deemed to have these significant mental health issues that they get locked in a room and never spoken to again these people obviously go through very complex treatment plans to better understand who they are and what potentially is the root cause of these problems am i right yeah exactly so the rationale the whole point of being transferred to one of these psychiatric units is that they have a diagnosable disease that we think we can treat uh, somewhere like Broadmoor, so that's high secure. There's only four high secure hospitals in, in the UK, Broadmoor being uh, the most notorious one. There's something like 70 or 80 medium secure units and possibly hundreds of low secure units. So obviously the, the, the more dangerous they are, the higher level of security. Generally speaking, people, it takes a long time to get somebody rehabilitated through Broadmoor, you know, minimum 
seven or eight years minimum, sometimes decades, sometimes they're not going to leave because they're so unwell. Medium secure units, shorter than that. It's like, you know, three, four years is your average length of stay. But yeah, so you're medicating them to get rid of their symptoms. You're offering them intense psychotherapy so that they really understand what were the triggers, what were the causes, what things they have to avoid in the future. Plus, we help them in other ways, like we have an occupational therapist that trains them up because the vast majority of them uh, have really bad um, backgrounds in education and vocational skills. Like there are exceptions, but but the vast majority struggle to even like you know basic to to do um, uh, basic education like reading and writing. So we train them up, we give them skills, we send them back out, and then the the, the whole aim is to make them less dangerous and less likely uh, to offend. So if I'm I'm a police officer investigating some of these individuals in society, what are the greatest challenges I'm likely to come up against in terms of, A, the simplest thing, trying to communicate with them? We talk about, as you know, police officers' biggest skill is the art of communicating, and, and that's communicating with people from all different walks of life and backgrounds. But I would imagine that is really um, put to the test when confronted by somebody who's very vulnerable, who really probably isn't in the same logic of thinking that we are in terms of how they perceive what we're saying, what is going on around them, how they feel threatened by a particular environment, but yet they may have just committed one of the most serious crimes imaginable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, good question. I think, first of all, we have to understand that uh, when we talk about mental illness, there's so many different diagnoses and presentations, right? So it's a spectrum, really. So you if you're talking about somebody that just has a relatively minor or common mental health problem, that is the majority of the offender population. So more than 50% of people in prison, for example, will have some form of anxiety or depression. However, that is not the people that I'm talking about. The people that I'm talking about are on the very severe end of the spectrum. So for example, bipolar affective disorder, schizophrenia. Now, I just really want to make um, clear the point that the vast majority of these people don't have, are, are not dangerous that have these mental illnesses. But the ones that do have mental illnesses and are dangerous, the small proportion are exactly the kind of patients that I see. So if we're talking about something like psychosis, which is a very common presentation that I see when I work as an expert witness, they have very specific symptoms. So hearing voices, auditory hallucinations, or psychotic um, delusions, paranoid delusions. So they think that, for example, like somebody I I assessed recently thought his neighbour was a paedophile, completely untrue. It's because of uh, paranoid delusions he was having. So they attacked this man. But to answer your question, if you confront somebody like this in the community, I think the police... uh, I struggle because they don't have a lot of um, mental health training and, and they have very little actual face-to-face uh, experience with, with these kind of patients before, before they actually see them in the community. I suppose you just have to treat them in quite a calm and collective manner, number one, because if you agitate them or if you add to their paranoia, then it's going to be much, much harder to get any kind of rapport or to calm them down. And also just to kind of, I think the average policeman has to realise that in that moment, if they're psychotic, then you're not going to be able to have a sensible conversation. So something that makes sense to you is not necessarily going to make sense to them if they're massively paranoid. So the the, the point isn't, or the aim isn't to try and get um, like a confession or um, a detailed conversation with information that makes sense. The aim, I would say, is to get them into a place of safety so that a psychiatrist can see them, decide if they need medication and decide whether they need to be admitted to one of these kinds of hospitals or not. Because if they're, if they're truly, really unwell, you're not going to be able to talk them out of that they're going to need medication minimum so we've got that side of the spectrum where behaviors will be fairly obvious to us we'll be able to provide some level of intervention whatever that may look like and as you say the most important point here is getting those individuals into a place of safety when i was going through my training through the police we, we often talked about the difference between mad and bad and obviously people that had that mad symptom where they were suffering, uh, they're probably terminologies which are, which are probably frowned upon today, but they're ones that I was used to and, and, and trained on, that mad related to those illnesses, those issues that we probably couldn't see and they had, there was sort of deep, deep meaning to sort of how somebody had got there, whereas bad was just people that were evil, just not pleasant. Now, I wanted to talk about something that's been very topical of late in terms of people that commit crime from a medical background. I'm sort of reflecting on here on the Lucy Letby matter, where we've got a a young nurse who has committed the most abhorrent crimes, you know, found guilty of the murders of seven babies, the attempted murder of further six, but didn't seem to present any of the symptoms of somebody with mental illness, 
but obviously has, has has solidified her position as one of our most notorious medical serial killers in this country. Is she? Did, would she present with mental health issues, or is she just a bad person? Sure. So uh, I would, as a psychiatrist, I would instead of using terms man or bad, I would say psychotic or personality disordered. Right. So just as a very quick rundown to tell you the difference between the two. Mad means somebody has symptoms where they can't control their thoughts or emotions or behaviour, so they don't know what they're doing in extreme forms of that. So as I said before, auditory hallucinations, so they're hearing voices, telling them what to do, delusions usually when it comes to violence usually paranoid delusions so they genuinely think they're being followed they're being watched they're being poisoned uh i've not lucy let but i've certainly assessed mothers who've killed their own children not a handful of them who believe that their children are marked in some way like marked by the devil so they they're in their head they're doing the right thing to save their child from the afterlife for example uh, whereas bad is a personality disorder so it's not a symptom it's not you stepping out of your normal baseline functioning it's actually ingrained it's part of you and as, as a are you a current policeman or an ex-policeman ex-policeman all policemen are, I'm, I'm sure probably more than me actually you've seen people who are very antisocial very dangerous very impulsive very aggressive uh, completely lack empathy who will do commit extreme violence or extreme behaviors to get what they want whether they're criminal career, uh, career criminals whether they're drug dealers whether they're thugs um whether they're gangsters whatever they are but they know exactly what they're doing they but it's so the problem with them is is really ingrained it's, it's those personality traits that i was talking about it's not that they're out of control so that's that's a very kind of basic description of mad versus bad now lucy letby is absolutely the latter rather than the former so she was completely in control she she knew exactly what she was doing she wasn't driven by anything um i think she probably had some mild mental health difficulties we know that she had anxiety and depression she was treated for them before the court case but you know i really have to stress that's that's got nothing to just because somebody has a mental illness especially a, um, a fairly common one doesn't mean that they were not in control of what they were doing uh, for Lucy Letby, what makes her quite unique, in my opinion, is there seems to be very little in terms of um, red flag, red flags. There's, there's little from her history. As far as we know, there's no trauma, nor no abuse. She got on well with people, so she had a good relationship with her parents. She related well to colleagues. She was seen as conscientious before babies started turning up dead. So she's very, very unusual because there's, there's almost nothing to kind of pick up, which makes it even more terrifying, I guess. Is that similar? Is that similar to cases like Harold Shipman in terms of here's this trusted doctor who's been in the community forever and suddenly people start wondering what on earth's going on? And, and before we know it, you've got one, two, three hundred plus people that have, that are suspected to become victim to his behaviour. Yeah. So I think Lucy Letby and Harold Shipman are very similar in some ways in that, there again, there weren't any red flags for Harold Shipman either. There was no antisocial behaviour, no criminal record, no known previous violence. I think the way that they differ is that and this might change, but we don't know yet what Lucy Letby's motivations were because she's never opened up. And um, I suppose Harold Shipman didn't open up, but there seems to be not an excusable by any means, but an understandable kind of God complex. So because he, his mother died of lung cancer and he was very much part of that process and he would medicate her, uh, I think he somehow got quite close to death. And he got like he got a thrill of deciding who gets to live and who gets to die. Whereas Lucy Letby, I think, from what we know, is a bit different. I think that she got quite close to the grieving process because she was kind of always present when um, parents were around when their babies were dying. In fact, she even turned up like in the in the background in the scene when it wasn't even her patient, just when other babies were dying. So I think she somehow just got some sort of connection or thrill to to the grief rather than the death. As I talk about the challenges of dealing with these events day in day out from a policing perspective we're exposed to so much trauma that we don't know how our body will react the fight or flight type response mechanism as in your role and in your profession how do you manage your own stresses and challenges of these stories that you hear what you're exposed to how do you compartmentalize the details of what you must be told which must be incredibly graphic at times yeah yeah it is, is incredibly graphic i think that my job is less emotionally taxing than for example a police officers because you guys have to actually go 
at the scene of the crime, either while it's happening or immediately afterwards. I'm a bit more removed from that because we see the people who've committed these crimes, but it's usually uh, weeks or months afterwards. And we don't see, you know, for example, the crime scene or the dead bodies. We, we do get witness statements, we get the police bundle, we get um, sometimes CCTV footage and pictures. So I suppose that's one thing. It's not quite as sort of intense in your face. It's just happened. It's, it's more kind of evidence that's been collected over time. So that's one thing. So there's another thing is that I'm very, very clear in my role what my role is so my role is never to judge the individual and to decide whether they're guilty or not that is purely for the for the jury and for the judge my role is only to dis- to help the court understand the psychiatric element so do they have a mental illness yes or no if they did did they have symptoms at the time of their offense you know looking at all the evidence witness statements cctv etc yes or no if they had symptoms at the time of the offense were they criminally culpable yes or no and if they were criminally culpable then basically they go, I, I upon my evidence they go to prison and if they're not, which is only a very small percent, you know, probably less than 5%, then those are the people that I divert to the psychiatric hospitals. So if I know that in my mind, that I'm only deciding the very small proportion that need treatment rather than punishment, and I know that the vast majority will go on to be punished by another system that's nothing to do with me, then it's easier to not be judgmental because it's not about what I, what I think about them as individuals or what they've done. It's only about pulling out the psychiatric symptoms. Can I ask you a question around sort of the challenges that, you know, one of the biggest challenges I think the what the globe has faced ever since 9-11 is the threat of terrorism. How do we, what's what's an evaluation of an individual that, that kills based on an ideology? Does that fall into, where, where does that fit in terms of the support that you can provide? I suppose I think back to sort of the tragic death of Lee Rigby, where you've got two gentlemen who have committed the most barbaric act in the name of something that they believe this ideology now now everyone would look at that and go these chaps i look at it and go these chaps aren't well that 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 is that is not the response of any normal human being regardless of ideologies beliefs is there a mental health part to that that we need to better understand is there something where a level of involvement from someone like yourself to better understand their thoughts and feelings and why they did that yeah um so the, the short answer to that is no i think the vast vast majority of people that have committed terrorist acts are not mentally ill now like you just said yourself if you define mental illness as somebody that's willing to do something that most people wouldn't do, you or I wouldn't do, that the average person has ethical, moral, social boundaries, if, they, if they're willing to do something that we wouldn't, if that's mental illness, then most offenders would be mentally ill by that definition. You know, you know uh, sex offenders against children would be mentally ill. Um, serial sex offenders would be mentally ill by that definition. The psychiatrist definition, my definition, is if they have a treatable, recognisable mental illness, so can you reverse it with therapy or with medication? And I'd argue that you, you can't. You can't give a medicine or a medication like an antipsychotic that will get rid of somebody's intrinsic kind of um, far extreme extremist beliefs. If somebody wanted, really wanted to be rehabilitated, they could potentially change some of their belief system through therapy. But that's not because of a mental illness that's just because of their like ideology or thought pattern um so the vast vast majority of times that i've assessed terrorists for like court cases i would say overwhelmingly I, I didn't find a mental illness i can think of maybe one or two cases where i did and they weren't terrorists before their mental illness they they became something like manic for example bipolar became really um excitable in, in, irrational in terms of their thinking and then after that they let, latched onto like terrorist propaganda that they found on the internet Having said all that, I do think that there is something, there are mental health issues that can make somebody more malleable or vulnerable or naive enough to be recruited by terrorists. So people who are, who might suffer from, say, anxiety, who are isolated, who are withdrawn, who maybe are bullied, have problems with um, home lives, drug and alcohol issues, all of those people uh, not not mentally ill, but all of those risk factors makes them more likely to uh, to be sort of converted and radicalised um, by terrorists. Absolutely. So, if you can improve all of those things in society, then the chances of terrorists finding people that they can recruit will decrease. But of course, it's really easy to say that, and it's really really hard to to change all of those things in society. It takes it takes a societal change, and it takes a lot of resources and time. We're going to talk about a few. Um incidents cases and i think for the purpose of listeners obviously for the for the sake of 
patient confidentiality. We're changing names. We're slightly tweaking scenarios here. But just to give us a bit of a, an understanding as to some of the challenges that have been presented to you in your, in your role, we're going to talk about three cases which you've had, uh, obviously, a, a intimate knowledge of the challenges. The first one, which fascinates me the most out of the three that you provided me, was a man with learning disabilities who was catfished by a pedophile hunting vigilante group on Facebook. Now, we're seeing more and more of this, where we get these pedophile hunters, as I think they call themselves, online, obviously pretending to be uh, children and then luring individuals into conversation, which that obviously moves on to sort of the grooming allegations, the grooming offences. They obviously then agree to meet. Um, and that's when these pedophile hunters step into uh, the realm. They surround these individuals. They start recording them. I assume they call the police and the rest continues. Now, there's been a lot of arguments in terms of whether this is right, whether this is wrong. I think the majority of the public will probably back them because they they, they view these individuals as the, as the lowest of society, obviously preying on our vulnerable children. But it's quite unique in the sense of these are not trained investigators these are not uh, you know authorized police investigations and we ultimately don't really know who we're dealing with and in this scenario with somebody with significant learning disabilities would they have committed these offenses bearing in mind there are challenges there so please just talk us through that particular scenario yeah absolutely and i completely agree with you ollie the reason why this case stood out this is why i chose to talk about it is because i think it's it's a very gray area not in general necessarily but this particular one so the man that I'm going to talk about is called uh, uh, Kai Fletcher. So that's the name that I, I use in my book, uh, Into Minds, even though it's not his real name. Uh, and he was 29 years old when I assessed him. And basically a vigilante group on Facebook made a fake um, account of a 15-year-old girl called Kitty. And she reached out to him, which I think is an important point, uh, from some sort of internet chat room or... No, it was, no, it was on Facebook. It was in some sort of Facebook group. And they were kind of flirting. And then Kitty made the uh, conversation quite sexualized. This guy, Kai, Kai Fletcher, he initially was a bit um, reticent, shall we say. He didn't really respond that much. And then she kept sort of just basically flirting and flirting and flirting and then wanted to meet up for a sexual encounter. And then Kai agreed. Uh, he met her at a service station. He got an Uber to a service station. He couldn't, couldn't drive, which I think is also relevant because it indicates part of his learning disability and his lack of functioning. Uh, Uber to a service station expecting to meet this girl and then basically got, got a, a van full of, of vigilantes, beat him up, roughed him up a little bit and called the police with all the evidence of all the stuff they printed out from Facebook. Uh, so he got arrested and then he was on bail when I saw him. And he'd never been diagnosed formally with a learning disability, but there was lots of, of signs to suggest that he's struggling. So, for example, he went to a normal school, but he was way behind his peers and he had the reading age of a like eight or nine year old child. He was able, he lived, do he live by himself? I remember. Yeah, he lived by himself, but he lived around the corner from his uh, family. He would like, you know, his mum would cook for him every single day. He couldn't handle his own finances which I think is also really important. So his parents would um, would give him like a, a little kind of budget for every week that he could spend on what he wanted to because in the past when he didn't do that, he would spend all of his money on like trainers and or, or booze, whatever it was, and, and like literally not have enough money to, to eat. He did work. He worked as a carpenter and that's relevant because people with serious learning disabilities generally don't function at uh, work, but it was an uncle, a job through his uncle. So maybe his level of functioning was low. I, I, really, I really don't know. Um, he wasn't sexually naive in that he pre he'd actually had a um, a child with a girlfriend when he was 19 and she was 17. They'd since split up, but he'd been involved in her life. So I mention that because he's not somebody who's sexually naive, I think. His explanation to the police and to me when I assessed him was was pretty pathetic, really. He said that his friend borrowed his phone and had sent all these all these messages to this woman kitty is a joke he's not really believable and he said that he got an uber to this service station to buy a phone charger which again doesn't really make sense why, why do that um and when i assessed him i just found i found him really odd and quite hard to communicate with and he struggled to understand what i thought was some really basic kind of concepts uh, and there were just some weird inconsistencies in what he was saying. So he wasn't particularly, I mean, he, he stuck to his story, but he, he didn't seem to have any kind of agenda. And I raised that because people who are trying to 
fake something or push something, in my opinion, generally have some sort of um, agenda. And some of the stuff he said was inconsistent. So he told me, for example, that he was living with his ex-girlfriend. Then he said he was living with his parents. Then he said he was living with friends. Then he said he was living alone. And I, I found out the truth anyway because I spoke to his solicitors. But just the fact that he kept changing his story for no discernible reason didn't make sense to me. Um, so basically, my my the point of my assessment was to find out whether his learning disability would have stopped him, his ability to form the mens re. So I know you understand what that is, Ollie, but for your viewers, it means like, would he have, would his learning disability stop him being able to understand the consequences of his, of his actions of what he was doing? And I thought actually, no, I think that he was, even though he denied doing what he did, he was able to just about understand that what he was doing was illegal and the potential damaging consequences of, of meeting a, a 15 year old for, sexual relations but i also thought he was quite vulnerable and he was also quite suggestible as well um which i think is true you know just the way he came across his his decreased level of functioning in general in his life to me suggests he, he doesn't he's not this he's not able to understand everything to the same degree as as a typical person average person me or you for example so i also wrote that in my evidence um so in the end he did end up going to prison it was a relatively short prison sentence um and i felt at the time when i was writing my report and i still feel now a bit uncomfortable if i'm being honest because what he did was absolutely wrong no, nobody's doubting that i'm not i'm not suggesting for a minute it wasn't but i also think he was kind of pressurized into it you know he lived on his own he was 29 he'd been living on his own for um, half, at least half a decade and he'd never sexually offended before he'd never reached out to an underage girl before he'd never tried to start relations which makes me think you know that he wasn't dangerous up until that point. So it made me feel a, a bit unsure if I was part of a system that, that was, you know, putting this man in prison unfairly. Is it, you know, when you look at the people that commit offences against children, is there often a history or some red flags or or issues which one often looks in their past, which could be a sign that, you know, their, their, their behaviours maybe started off relatively... Um, not so severe and got worse and worse and worse as they build up is this a level of fending which eventually gets out of control or can it just start from the word go in terms of there's no real backstory or history to anybody i would say that in the vast majority of cases there is some kind of escalation or backstory um so it's one of two things is either they themselves have suffered from some form of abuse or neglect or violence um either from their parents or from peers at school for example uh, so that's one thing or that they've had slight sexual offences or or promiscuous behaviour that's not been kept in check basically so it's escalated over time so I mean Wayne Cousins is a perfect example of that right so we know that he he f had a couple of um, misdemeanors he was like flashing he was naked I believe in a drive through once and because he's a police officer his colleagues just brushed it under the carpet so I think that's a perfect example is if you don't nip something in the bud it can escalate and escalate so it's usually one of those two things it's, it's unusual to see somebody that commits a serious sexual offence without that in their history but of course it's very feasible that they did and they have done something but they've never been caught and obviously they're not going to tell me or the judge or, or, or their solicitors about that because it just makes them look more more guilty a lot of this offending seems to me to to revolve around power and control and if we you know i suppose i reflect back on obviously you and i both uh, respectively our own in, in our own industries did a fair bit of media work over the let be matter and one of the particular issues which came up in the latter part was the sentencing and Letby's refusal to come up to the dock to witness and to uh, to be subjected to listening to the judge's sentencing remarks, victim impact statements, etc, etc. But I felt from my perspective this, this is a woman that wants to remain in control. You know, she it, it's almost this, this power and control is what they seem to seek out. The same with um, cousins, you know, this power and control over individuals um, which seems to be a trait common amongst people that commit some of the worst of crimes in our society. So let me ask you, uh, I'm happy, happy to answer, but um, before I do that, let me ask you a question, Ollie. What do you think about the uh, proposition to have people like literally forced in, dragged in? Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? Do you think it would work? No. So, uh, I, well, yeah, so I felt that at that point of the court procedure i feel victims need the dignity for them to have control for them to be able to deliver their victim impact statements and having somebody there kicking screaming shouting being gagged i, I think is 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 totally inappropriate and doesn't give victims and families the dignity that they deserve at a point where they want to get across to the court importantly what this particular crime has done to them so i i would rather that the that the judge make an order that this person is placed into a cell 
if they've got to be surrounded by tellies, they're surrounded by tellies and they listen to it. But I wouldn't want them to be in any position where they could disrupt and interfere again with the family's ability for them to almost start that grieving process or that, that healing process, which I think importantly they need to go through, which starts from sentencing and the delivery of their victim impact statements. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. So I think uh, one of the things that I was asked in the media was exactly about this. And I, there's, I think there's a strong kind of voice or contingent that think that people should be forced in. Uh, because, and I think that I kind of understand the rationale behind it. It's so that they have to listen to the damage they've caused, basically. But exactly like you said, we're, that's on the assumption that they will actually cooperate. But if they don't, if they mock, if they jeer, if they seem disinterested, if they shout, if they you know use it as an opportunity to again protest their innocence, then I don't think it'll be cathartic at all for the for the victims and their families. I think it can actually be quite damaging. I had quite a heated debate with Eamon Holmes about this because I said equally, you know, we live in a Western democracy. There are as much as this individual has forgone their human rights in terms of the human rights that they didn't convey to the individuals or the victims of their serious crimes. I never feel that we should we should lower ourselves to their level by gagging people and tying them up and bound them up and dragging them. And I just, I just felt it was inappropriate. So I was, I was intrigued to sort of your understanding as to sort of their control over the situation. So it's a fascinating debate. Yeah. So, so just to quickly say it could, it could definitely be about control. So specifically Lucy Letby, it could be like her last way, her last kind of attempt at kind of lashing out. But the counter argument to that is that, during the entire trial she wasn't smug or proud she just protested her innocence do you see what i mean so it doesn't fit the pattern of somebody that's trying to control and i mean obviously what she did was was controlling and dominating over the babies at that time so i completely get that but that's very different to her trying to be dominating controlling to adults to the victims to the solicitors to the lawyers to the judge etc etc she wasn't like that at all she was the opposite she was kind of meek and very quiet so that doesn't quite fit the pattern for me. So your first case, giving evidence in a murder trial at the Old Bailey, it, it, this is a case that stands out for you. The defendant, Yasmin, not her real name, was an 18-year-old schoolgirl who killed her two-year-old nephew in a flash of psychosis. This case was unusual because she didn't have any history of violence or problems with her mental health. She had delusional beliefs that the toddler had demons lurking inside and that she could not later resurrect him. Now, obviously, lots of lots of challenging issues there, not, you know, not to mention, obviously, the death of a young child, but equally, no history of violence, and then suddenly, from nowhere, bang, this happens. Yeah, and I have to say, it's exceptionally rare. You know, I must have... T- I've given evidence in well over 500 cases, and I can think um, of maybe two or three, like Yasmin, where there's been no kind of red flags at all. Lucy Levy, I mean, I didn't give evidence in Lucy Levy's case, but she would also fit this this very, very rare kind of presentation. Uh, so, yeah, this this young girl, Yasmin, she got she became psychotic very quickly. And again, that's unusual. It usually develops very gradually over weeks or months. She became psychotic within the space of about two weeks. There was some bizarre behaviour. I know this from speaking to her family afterwards, like sort of chanting, listening to very weird instrumental music, dressing in really odd sort of baggy clothes, saying bizarre things, not violent things, but just weird things about the clouds and sky and spirituality. So very kind of hippie, more than, uh, you know, angry or aggressive. And then, as you read out, she she killed her nephew. She smothered him, uh, believing those demons inside. Never had any kind of aggression before. Had babysat him many, many times without any problems. They, they lived in the same house, very close to him. Uh, didn't try and hide her acts, which I think is really telling about somebody who's genuinely psychotic versus, for example, someone that's trying to you know, fake illness. Was surprised when 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 like her her, her mother. The, the child's grandfather came home and, and noticed didn't understand why her mother was getting agitated because in Yasmin's mind she was going to resurrect her but resurrect this little uh, baby later on that day uh, also was very confused and the police were there that they weren't listening to her and her you know her delusions uh, when I saw her it was in it was in Holloway prison so it's quite a few years ago before it shut down uh, and it was really hard to assess her because she was very evasive and dismissive and passive aggressive like she was polite superficially but she gave me almost nothing about her um, like inner thoughts because I think she was very paranoid and so upon my evidence she got not guilty by reason of insanity uh, in the old Bailey 
and then she tr she transferred over to the medium secure female unit that I was working in in North London at the time uh, and it was just a real challenge to treat her because she completely lacked insight so she didn't believe that she had a mental illness she didn't want to take medication so we literally had to physically restrain her uh, every month to give her an antipsychotic depot injection uh, only only for a couple of times and then she eventually agreed to take it and she did eventually improve but it took a long time it took about 18 months before her delusions went so for that for that entire period of time she didn't believe that she'd killed her nephew she genuinely thought that we were lying and that her nephew had been resurrected um, and finally when she actually when her psychosis resolved then as you'd expect she had this flood of like guilt and shame uh, of what, when she actually realised what she did and then she got really depressed so we had to treat her depression and I think the main thing that stands out for me in, in my experience of that was that as part of her rehabilitation was family therapy so her brother who's the father of the young boy that died would come in once a week and we'd sit there and I'd be in the room as well just trying to re repair that relationship really and I have to say I'm really impressed by him and his um, being so magnanimous in basically forgiving her because I think many people probably even most people wouldn't that's gonna be what's that was gonna be one of my questions is that in your experience how do families respond to an individual being found not guilty by way of insanity I, I, I suppose do they see that a sort of closure does it justify to them what happened obviously this is someone that's not being found guilty and going away for a whole life sentence this is somebody who's then obviously going to be remanded in custody to treat this illness but how do the families deal and manage with that do you have an opportunity to discuss this with them to let them know what is going on in terms of the treatment do they get an insight into sort of who this individual is why did they do this does that is that something that's part of this whole process yeah, absolutely. So the work that I do now, I work as an expert witness and I'm instructed by the CPS or I'm instructed by a solicitor to, to make an assessment with an individual while they're on trial, usually on remand in prison. So it's literally a one hour, maximum two hour assessment. And then I never see that individual again. So that's what I do now. In a previous wow. reincarnation, so a few years ago, I was working in a medium secure unit and that would be more about rehabilitation. So the, the people have already gone through that process of being seen by an expert witness and they've been transferred to our unit and if you remember i said before that it's a very small proportion it's you know a few percent if that uh so yeah to answer your question the people that are inside these units who are there for the long-term rehabilitation very much so so we speak to their family members regularly um so they have family if they're really unwell family members will advocate for them they'll come to the ward rounds for example they'll be at the discharge meetings but to answer your question it's a huge huge spectrum so i've seen quite a few families who pretty much disown the individual uh, not necessarily because of that one act they did even if it's something as extreme as killing somebody it's usually because they've struggled with him or her it's more often than him uh, through most of their adult lives so these people are, are the most damaged in society they've been in and out of psychiatric hospital in and out of prison some of them have got huge drug and alcohol problems so they've leached off their families some of them have been violent to, to their own family members so there it's it's like trying to get blood out of a stone just trying to contact their families so for example right. if you've had somebody there for, for say three four years they're well enough to be discharged uh I, I the ideal kind of situation would be to to go to to be discharged back to the family home or if if not and you can understand why you might not want somebody who's who's been violent in your family home then at least somewhere near where you live where they grow up so that you can keep an eye on them you can see them you can help get take to appointments um and I have to say it's really, really hard sometimes because the families literally disown them, want nothing to do with them. On the other hand, uh, I've seen people that are really, really over-involved. I'd say most people are probably more towards the first end. So I think most people want a bit of distance, not necessarily fully disown them, but want a bit of distance from these individuals. But I've seen I've seen family members. There's one woman who sticks in my mind in particular who would literally phone me every single day wanting an update on her son. And... I don't mean to sound harsh, but her son was was really, really unwell, completely psychotic, was non-communicative, uh, would barely come out of his room. He wouldn't leave his room until about, I don't know, 11, 12 p.m., 11 a.m., 12 p.m. most days, was really disheveled, wouldn't shower, wouldn't talk to us, was, you know, really, really psychotic. My point being is that from a day-to-day -day basis, there was nothing that had changed and his recovery was going to take 
years and years and years. Uh, I moved out of that job, so I never saw him get better, but I was there for about three years and he barely changed. Maybe he got a tiny bit better in that time, but she would phone me every single day saying, have you tried this? Have you tried this? What about this medication? Blah, blah, blah. And I had tried everything. Um, and, you know, I completely get where she's coming from, but there's nothing that I could do, like nothing new that I could tell no. her every single day. Um, so that's an example of something that's, that's extremely involved and wants like to be part of the process every step of the way. So, the, the family members of the patients that I've seen are somewhere in that spectrum, again, more towards the kind of distance, disown uh, end of the spectrum rather than the over-involved. How do our police react to people being found not guilty by way of insanity? Um, I think that, uh, again, every time you ask me a question, I'll never give you a straight <laughs> answer. That's because there's just such a, different, a, a, a range. There's a range of individuals. I think some police officers don't really understand uh, mental illness and have uh, uphold some of the stigma against it. I think some are very understanding. The other thing I'd say is that within people who are really unwell, within people that are psychotic, there's those that are really obviously unwell who are yeah. voicing their, their um, delusional beliefs. So they're screaming the place down. They're terrified of, of visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations. They overtly say things that don't make sense, like this person's following me or, you know, why are you looking into my soul or whatever it is. There's also people, probably less often, um, but a smaller proportion, but there are also people who are so unwell that they're really paranoid. So they don't say anything. So your average member of the public, maybe your average policeman will see them and they've not done anything overtly, which shows that they're psychotic. But a psychiatrist like myself, not that I'm extra intelligent it's just i just get more time to sit with the individual you know yeah the, you know, i observe them over months so that's why i get to know what they're actually thinking like yasmin's a perfect example if you saw her if you assessed her uh and she, she wouldn't say anything that was overtly crazy psychotic and you would think you know why is this horrible horrible woman killed an innocent child but if you spent time with mm. her for months like i did then the little things should slip out don't make sense or there's little paranoid things in the way that she behaves and the way she carries herself so my answer being if you're a police officer and you only saw a snippet of them they didn't seem psychotic then you'd probably be very uh, frustrated and angered by somebody getting the insanity plea if you don't see the mental illness yourself Let's talk about this final example which you've kindly provided me, which is a man with a drug-induced psychosis who stabbed his cousin whilst going through a psychotic episode. Um, tell us about that one. Sure, yeah. So in my book, I call him Barry. He was a gay man in his uh, mid-20s. He had HIV. And he also had some psychiatric uh, diagnoses in the background. So he had bipolar affective disorder, ADHD, he had a very challenging uh, childhood, I think it's fair to say. He had problems with addiction himself. I think two of his, he had four siblings and two of them died of drug overdoses. He was exposed to a high level of violence. So he just, you know, he came from um, very troubled waters. And he was also a drug addict. So he would take GHB, crystal meth, methadrome, uh, which was about popular back then. And then on, on Christmas, I believe it's 2018 or 19, uh, he was basically, he'd, he'd been kicked out. His, his parents, his grandparents lived in central London. He had an argument with them, which happened quite regularly. He got kicked out. He was wandering the streets of Soho uh, alone, looking for sex with, a, with another gay man, found one fairly easily, uh, went back to this person's flat. I never met before, they were strangers, and he did something called a booty bump, which I'd never heard of before. I had to literally Google it when I was doing my court report on him. And it is where you take a drug like crystal meth, you dissolve it in like solvents, including water, and you just squirt it up your bum hole so that the you absorb it in your mucus, mucus membrane. So it's just a, a quick and easy way of getting high. And he'd never done one of these before, and he took some crystal meth, and he basically got a drug-induced psychosis. So he believed that he was seeing dragons, and he believed that it was on fire. And this new lover that he'd met, understandably got a bit freaked out and kicked him out of the house and then barry went round to his drug dealer's house which was around the corner um when he was in his drug dealer's house i think he calmed down temporarily for a few moments and he's like really trying to contain his blues and his symptoms he went into the toilet in this drug dealer's house and then, then the psychosis came back he believed he was on fire so he took off all his clothes and then he texted his cousin who's called clarice who just only because she also lived right, relatively nearby about a mile away texted her saying you know you got help i'm at this address i think i'm on fire so she comes around he's so psychotic that he forgets that he texted her so she walks into this flat that was open. The drug dealer's like zonked out on, on weed, like he's been smoking weed all day, just like passed out in the, in the room, doesn't know any of this is happening. She goes into the, it walks into the bed, into the bathroom, Barry's naked in the bathtub, thinks that he's on fire. So he's like constantly putting water on himself, talking about dragons that he can see. 
doesn't understand why Clarissa suddenly appeared because, as I said, he forgot that he sent the text. So in his mind, he was really suspicious. Like, why is she? How the fuck does she know where I am? And how does like how, why is she here? Asked her, and he didn't believe her when she told him the truth. Um, he had a pair of scissors. He stabbed himself in the cheek first of all, like right the way through his cheek. I don't really know why. I think he thought that there was you know, worms or bugs or something over him. And then as she was getting her clothes ready because she was going to take him to the hospital, he stabbed her on the back of the head. It wasn't a, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a massive wound. It was just like a, quite a long, a long cut that needed a few stitches. And then they both went to hospital. A drug dealer woke up in the middle of all of this, not knowing the clues. Yeah, there. what is going on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He <laughs> really freaked out. Uh, he obviously didn't want the police around, so he, he kicked him out of his flat. Uh, then they went to the hospital. Then Barry got arrested. And the reason that I bring this this sort of story up, apart from the fact that it's, it's pretty wild, was because as a medico-legal case, it was really complicated for me because he's got a history of mental illness, clearly, because he's been you know in and out of hospital in the past with bipolar. But he voluntarily took drugs. But then he took it in a method that he never did before. Then he got drug-induced psychosis. So does he have a psychiatric defense is basically what I had to figure out. Uh, and generally speaking, if you take drugs voluntarily and if you're intoxicated, just, just as somebody somebody drinks and gets into the pub, obviously there's no psychiatric defense. Obviously, otherwise everyone would use that. Uh, but it's slightly different if you go into drug-induced psychosis, if you're out of touch with reality, then it's a bit of a gray area. It depends how you interpret the law. But I was... I was sitting on the, well, I wasn't sitting on the fence, but I found it quite hard because I think he was very near the border. But I said that he didn't have a psychiatric uh, illness, so he was responsible because he ingested the drugs voluntarily uh, and because he attacked her because he was paranoid about her. Uh, but I also suggested that as he hadn't had much of a criminal record, I think he had a couple of driving offences, that he should have a community order rather than a prison sentence. And part of that community order should be that he got drug tested on a regular basis and had to be like uh, free, uh, free of drugs. And the judge agreed with that. So that was the that was the outcome. Have you ever sat across the table from somebody going through, I suppose, sort of the treatment phase of your work? Obviously, now you're doing something slightly different and been, I say, I say fearful, but Obviously, you look into someone's eyes sometimes. For for me, that's the biggest teller in terms of the non-verbals. You know, we rely a lot of those to form judgment as to kind of what we perceive as a threat or as a concern. And even in your role, have you sat across the table and gone, this is one scary individual? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have. Yeah. Um, so I it's, it actually happens more often the very first time you see somebody like in a, in a section 136 uh, assessment for example so obviously you'll know but for your for your listeners uh, that's when the police will bring somebody in to be potentially sectioned into a psychiatric unit so they're a lot more predictable because you literally don't know what's coming through the door and as I was saying before I think people have this assumption that if somebody's ill or psychotic they're very agitated and screaming the place down and sometimes they are but equally sometimes they're not and somebody can be the opposite in fact so if you're really 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 paranoid then you might not say or do anything because you're trying to suss out this person that claims they're a psychiatrist and this person that claims they're a police officer those are the more dangerous people because they're the people that might suddenly jump off and attack you not because they're evil bad people but because they in their psychosis they believe that their life's in danger you know so i've definitely seen that it happens less often than you think in a psychiatric unit because first of all they're put into the right level of security and secondly because there's nurses observing them all the time so we know them quite well. And if they do get agitated, then they'll either be on one-to-one observations or we'll medicate them you know, earlier rather than later, or we'll put them into a seclusion room. So I don't know if you've ever seen one of these in a psychiatric unit, but it's literally like what people used to call a padded cell. It's like a locked unit where people are kept and medicated regularly until they're safe enough to come out. So those environments, I mean, they, they can be sort of unstable and dangerous at times, but because there's so many members of staff, because everyone knows what they're doing, and because all the patients are on medication, generally speaking, it's more stable. It's fascinating. And I must admit, it's an area of obviously where policing has a very close involvement. Before we move on to your book and your uh, very popular YouTube channel and your media work, I just I suppose wanted to reflect on a part of our conversation we had in the early part, where obviously in my introduction, I talked about I talked about some Art Rowley's decision to step back away from non-life-threatening mental health calls for service because, as you quite rightly pointed out, and I've made comment to this uh, in the media myself, about policing. If, if I have a family member who's not well, who's going through an episode, a medical episode, or they need to see a doctor, sometimes the worst person potentially to send to that, to that intervention 
is a police officer an authoritative figure sometimes you know you could associate that with sort of the negativity of i'm going to be am i going to be put in handcuffs am i going to go in the back of one of these paddy wagons am i going to go you know what's going to happen it's all very scary whereas you'd rather somebody from a clinical background turn up and treat somebody and look after them when that announcement came out what was your response you think you know because you've mentioned that police really don't have the sort of broad set of skills that you and your colleagues and many nurses do in this mental health field what was your initial response when you heard that the police were stepping back yeah so the truth is Ollie, i've had very mixed feelings about this because i have been present in accident emergency uh situations where people have come in on 136s uh, or, or simply just brought in by the police when they mm. have the police officers have hung around and it's been completely unnecessary um, and they're more there uh, to kind of as a deterrent for the person to leave until the psychiatrist comes. And I'm sure you, you'd know this from your own uh, from your own career, mm. but sometimes it takes hours, right, to get two psychiatrists. Hours and hours and hours. And on top of that, you need to get an independent social worker, especially in the middle of the night, especially on a busy night. And because we, we also, there's on-call people that they cover other hospitals and other areas. It can mm. literally be hours, sometimes as much as six, seven, eight, ten hours. Uh, and I can see why a police officer would think this is not, this is a complete waste of my time because I'm literally doing nothing there. So I completely get that. But conversely, I've also been in situations mm. where uh, the the mental health nurse wouldn't be able to contain a patient because, you know, there's some average built middle-aged man or woman. Uh, and the person who's actually quite unwell is potentially physically very, very dangerous. So you need the police officers there. I think if I'm being 100% honest, I think there's more often cases where police officers are not needed than when they are needed. But yeah. Uh, but it also scares me to think that if there isn't backup, what would happen? You know, that member of staff could quite easily be assaulted or the um, patient could just leave physically, like leave the AD department or leave the place of safety or both. So to summarize, I worry, I, I, can, I get it. I get the, uh, the understanding behind it because it does waste a lot of police time unnecessarily. Uh, but I worry mm-hmm. that there's going to be situations that, that mental health nurses can't handle by themselves or psychiatrists as well. I'm sorry, I say nurses because they, they're the first ones on the scene. Psychiatrists come mm-hmm. later. Um, ideally, I mean, the solution to me is really obvious. You need somebody who's really good at assessing the situation and deciding when a police officer is needed and, you know, the, and knowing when the police officer can leave. That is the simple solution. It's just who would do that and whether they do it properly because from the mental health nurse's perspective, it's easier to say, yeah, we need you to stay even if the police officer doesn't because you don't want the risk of violence. And from the police officer's perspective, they're more likely to want to leave earlier uh, even if things could potentially kick off because they they either find it boring or they've got better things to do. Uh, so it's a bit of a tension. You need somebody that's completely objective in the middle that gets to make that decision, I think. It will certainly be very interesting in the coming months to see how that new policy sort of takes shape and what could potentially be the ramifications, either in the positive or the negative. And so we'll, only time will tell. But let's move on to, obviously, you've, you've got an incredibly successful media career in terms of your very popular YouTube channel. You've written a book, Into Minds. Tell us about the book, first of all. What was the trigger to writing that? Tell us what that more broadly is about. And is it basically taking us through the steps of your life and your role and what you see and what you experience? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So I think the book, not too dissimilar to the YouTube channel, was just because I think that people are generally quite fascinated about my line of work, the kind of cases I see, the patients I see, the diagnoses I see, the, the weird situations I find myself in, like the people I talk to you about today. Uh, and I've always kind of known that people are interested in it, but never had the time to do anything about it. And then lockdown happened, basically. So that's that's where both the book and the YouTube channel came from. The book is more kind of serious. It's about my own cases that I've seen. And it's kind of chronological in that when I first started out as a, as a forensic psychiatrist, I first worked in these secure units, then I worked in prison, and now I work as an expert witness. So it kind of talks me through why I made that progression and the most fascinating cases that I've seen in each of those fields. The YouTube channel is a bit more uh, kind of entertainment than it is serious science. So, you know, the book talks about diagnoses and how I go about my assessments and stuff like that, whereas the YouTube channel is a bit more um, my, the in- cases that I find interesting that I might not have been in- uh, involved in directly, like, you know, your Jimmy Savills, R. Kelly, Lucy Letby, some um, Andrew Tate. So just things that are going on in the world, and it's a bit more lighthearted, a bit more humorous. So your YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds, you've got, what, over... 
52,000 subscribers, which is incredible success. Many, many congratulations. And like you say, you cover everything from delving into sort of true horror with sort of Jimmy Savile and those sorts of offences, even down to some of the more interesting stuff that we like to explore around sort of the mental health of many different individuals that have come to front police even Anders Bering with that horrendous massacre which was not too long ago and and, and I don't know whether you cover it but the Christchurch massacre was a story that I covered um, last year um, with a former New Zealand police officer so a fascinating channel so that's where to find it a psych for sore minds and your book uh, in two minds I assume that's available across all sort of normal bookstores Waterstones Amazon you name it it's there yeah yeah absolutely it is yeah so tell us about your career projection now what what what's the next five ten years look for look like for someone like yourself sure um I think in terms of my actual professional work as a forensic psychiatrist I'm quite happy where I am I think work as an expert witness has been by far the most interesting of the things I've done so so for me personally uh, I find it more stimulating than working in a psychiatric unit or in a prison just because the turnover is, is so much higher. You get to see so many more uh, weird and wonderful cases. So I don't want to change anything from, from that aspect. For the media stuff, I think I just want to do a bit more kind of media commentary. So you and I both commentated on Lucy Letby. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to have to wait to cases that are that kind of intense or horrific, but anything to do with true crime, I want to be like the go-to guy to talk about it. Fantastic. Well, listen, the last hour of conversation and going over these three fascinating cases and delving into your life in an area which I think is fascinating to my listeners because we often talk about police officers, ordinary people doing extraordinary work, but we don't talk about really the people that they come into contact with. What are those people like? What are their backgrounds? What makes them tick? And the people that are have got mental health issues, which is taking up a large amount of uh, police time, but equally a lot of the people they're arresting have got backgrounds and stories that a lot of us don't understand. It's people like yourself that gets you know charged with the responsibility of sort of helping to rehabilitate these people better understanding what's their triggers where have they come from why did they do what they do so thank you ever so much for sharing your story on the protect and serve podcast anybody listening today please look up um dr das's book in two minds and his youtube channel fascinating insights and can i thank you again for coming on the show ollie it's been an absolute pleasure lovely to talk to you all right speak soon take care all the best bye This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.